What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Clean Libertarian Podcast. Hope that wherever you're at, you're doing great. Everything's good around here. Uh, not going to hang out too much in this intro. I, I, I am so excited for you to hear this conversation. Uh, this is Dana Larson. Uh, Dana is a drug activist, uh, author, all around just a phenomenal person. And he's been involved in this game for a very long time. He's based out of Vancouver, Canada. And uh, just got to sit and talk to him about what brought him into this line of work and, you know, what drives his passion and, and what he's been up to. And let me tell you, man, this dude is punk rock. You know, like he's got, he's got a, a cannabis dispensary. He's got a, a, a magic mushroom dispensary. He does a lot of wonderful things there, but he also does a drug testing effort. You know, he uses the proceeds from, you know, his shops that he has. And, and the guy is just, I don't know, he's just really cool. And so I, I, I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. And uh, yeah, here's Dana. All right, Dana, thank you so much for coming on and uh, and and making this happen. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Just got back from my cafe and I'm happy to chat with you for a while. And I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about. Yeah, man. So um, for, for the audience that may not know about your work, why don't you just give it kind of a brief little rundown or an introduction of sorts? Well, I'm up here in Vancouver, Canada, and I do a lot of civil disobedience and work to end the war on drugs in different ways. And um, I've been doing this for over 30 years now since I was a teenager and I'm over 50 now. And we've had a lot of successes and some losses and a lot of challenges. But I think we've helped to really uh, change drug policy in Canada, especially around cannabis. But now we're working on psychedelics and other substances. And uh, I've done a lot of different work in this regard. I've been in political parties. I've run for office. I've started Seed Bank. I've started a cannabis dispensary. I've started a mushroom dispensary. I've done national tours across Canada where I've given away uh, 10 million marijuana seeds uh, and a lot of different kind of civil disobedience and activist projects like that over the years. As far as I'm concerned, drug policy is one of the most important issues of our time in so many different ways. And I'm really happy to have spent my life and career uh, working on trying to make things better in this regard. And that's that is that is quite the resume there. What what would you say initially got you to go down this path that you've been on? Like, I know you said you started when you were a teenager. Like, what, what did that look like? Well, when I was in like grade 11, grade 12, I started using cannabis. I read a very influential book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes, which came out uh, like in the late 80s, early 90s. And. It was the first book that really documented the hidden history of hemp and how useful hemp was in the founding of America and in Canada too, in some different ways. And a lot of that information came out. And I also was working with uh, some other groups. I, I, I called the League for Ethical Action on Drugs. And we would have speakers come on campus and we would learn about things. And I became aware it wasn't just about marijuana policy, but really our whole war on drugs was the terrible failure or maybe a great success if you if your policy is to put a lot of people in prison and generate a lot of money for the prison <laughs> industrial complex and support police forces and give them a lot of pointless work to do and you know then maybe the war on drugs is very successful but in terms of having a happy healthy sane and safe society uh, and a safe planet the war on drugs has been an absolute disaster causing most of the harm and misery which it claims to be trying to prevent and so yeah. i started getting working in a lot of different areas uh, I used to do a newsletter called The Hype. This was in like the you know early 90s. We would distribute this uh, for free of charge through the 
Vancouver Needle Exchange, where it was talking about different issues around injection drug use and how to be safe and what the politics were at the time. And uh, after I graduated, I started working on a, a magazine. We called it Cannabis Canada. And then it became Cannabis Culture as it spread into the U.S. And I worked with a guy named Mark Emery, who was doing a lot of civil disobedience. He was selling bongs and pipes here in Vancouver back in the 90s when that was illegal. He managed to like encourage many others to open these kind of shops. You know, now it seems kind of quaint, but at the time, getting a bong or a pipe or a pack of rolling papers or even like a Cheech and Chong movie or a book about growing cannabis, oh, my dog's barking here, anything like that was uh, impossible and illegal. And so that was kind of the first part of this revolution. And then it went on from, from uh, uh, books and information and bongs to seeds. And Mark actually spent four years in an American prison for selling marijuana seeds to Americans. I helped wow. pick up that when he was gone, and I, I opened the seed bank. And then I opened uh, one of the first cannabis uh, medical cannabis dispensaries in Vancouver. And we helped uh, tutor many other people on how to open their own dispensaries and really created a movement of cannabis dispensaries, uh, openly selling marijuana across the country. And now I'm, and that led to legalization, I think. It wasn't the only factor, but I think having this mass civil disobedience of hundreds and hundreds of shops all across the country openly defying the law was very influential in getting the law changed. And now I'm leading the fight in a similar matter, matter with the magic mushroom dispensary that I operate, the medicinal mushroom dispensary. And we sell some other interesting herbs and plants too that I'll talk about maybe later. But, uh, but that's sort of been my career. I've done a lot of other political work in that, but for me, it's, 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 I'm in a country, in a city where civil disobedience like this can be very effective. It doesn't always work everywhere, but here it's been really effective in changing the law and getting people to, uh, to you, you create a normalization and then the law follows afterwards. People think the law changes and then society changes, but it's the other way around. Yep. Society changes first, and then the laws change long after it's no longer controversial. And so that's kind of been the work I've been doing. Man, that's that your finger is right on the pulse, man. I, I love hearing that. Um, what would you say now, whenever that legalization shift happened, um, was there any kind of like retroactive um, expungement of, you know, past, you know, if people were incarcerated at the time, uh, did they let them out? Well, Let's see. Well, man, I mean, I there wasn't, they didn't because the, the way they wrote the law is that these things are still criminal offenses unless you have a license. So somebody who was growing marijuana before legalization, their action was still considered illegal after legalization because they're growing it without a permit, which is still a crime. And in some cases, it's even more severely punished post-legalization than pre-legalization. Um, so that's been a challenge with the law changing. The good thing is there was 60,000 Canadians being arrested for marijuana possession every year. That number is not zero, but it's a lot lower than it used to be. It's, it's, it's you know, down less than 1% than it was. But the challenge has been with legalization is about who profits, who gets to sell it, uh, and, and the continuing uh, uh, stigmatization of cannabis use and the way that all these regulations that were put in are treating cannabis far more severely than alcohol, far more severely than tobacco uh, in a way that's not, it should be at least be the same. And it should really be less because cannabis is less harmful. But there's so many examples federally, provincially, and at the city level where they treat cannabis very strictly and have these harsh penalties involved uh, and make it very hard to be part of the legal cannabis industry. And I think also many levels of government thought they were going to bring in a lot of money from legalization. And while there is revenue to be had in cannabis sales taxes and that, they really, and this happens in a lot of places, they added a lot of extra special taxes onto cannabis. So there's a 10% like a $1 a gram 
excise tax on Canada, above on top of our sales tax federally, on top of the sales tax provincially, and then also municipalities are often charging very high amounts for their uh, business licenses to run cannabis shops, amounts that are 10 or 20 or 50 times higher than any other business license you could get. Some cities are forbidding cannabis sales entirely. So, I mean, it's, it's better than it was, but there's still a lot of issues around it. And, you know, the people that were most negatively affected by prohibition and by cannabis laws are not the ones at the front of the line to profit or to benefit from this. Most of the money has been in selling shares and forming companies and stocks and not really in selling and providing quality cannabis to people. And it's been frustrating because some of those who have gotten into the industry were people who have spent decades, really their whole careers, demonizing and attacking, and in many cases, arresting and incarcerating cannabis users. So, you know, the former head of the RCMP narcotics squad got into cannabis legalization. Uh, the prime minister of Canada, who banned bongs and pipes and grow books and Cheech and Chong movies and who brought in very harsh cannabis laws, is now on the board of directors of a large cannabis company. Many other people, politicians and police, who, who, who have not apologized you know, I'm all for police giving up their jobs and becoming marijuana growers or whatever. That's great, right? But yeah. not if, they're, if not if they're if they're going to continue to demonize and attack cannabis people. Not if they made their career off of harming the cannabis culture and then continuing to do so post legalization. Uh, that I do not approve of and think it's inappropriate. So that's been a challenge. And but things are getting better, and it's been a slow improvement. Uh, you know, there's lots of things to complain about, but I think also it's important to remember that Canada. As a federal government, we have the most progressive federal laws in the world. Many American states have more open laws than Canada does, but no federal government in the world has better cannabis laws than Canada does. And so although there's lots of things to complain about, we also should be grateful that we've got what we have and continue to work to improve them. But there are so many areas, you know, we don't have any warning labels on alcohol sold in Canada, but the cannabis is covered in warning labels, some of which are way over the top and ridiculous. There are some things to be careful about when taking cannabis, but they bring up addiction and cancer and all these things that are just not really relevant. Whereas alcohol, even the most potent alcohol is sold with no warning labels at all. So if you're going to put a warning label on cannabis, you should have one on alcohol. It's just an example of how they're treated very differently. And I'm not against alcohol or anything like that. It should be legal and allowed, but just seeing alcohol continue to be promoted. You know, of all of our politicians in Canada, they will all pose with alcohol and with a beer or with wine. They all speak proudly of their local beer industry and wine industry. Even politicians that I know that don't really drink will still pose with alcohol and promote alcohol consumption. Yet not one can't not one political person across the country post legalization has come out and said, Hey, I like smoking marijuana once in a while, or I enjoy a cannabis cookie once in a while, or every day, or whatever. Not one of them is admitted to being a cannabis user, including many folks who I've smoked marijuana with, who I know are users. So it's just an example of how I think they're afraid that people wouldn't vote for somebody who smokes pot or it's still too controversial to admit that they use marijuana. And uh, that, I think, you know, just shows that there's still a lot of stigma and a lot of challenges to be overcome around this when they're all, you know, happy to smash open kegs at Oktoberfest and happy to pose with big steins of beer. And we talk about right. which politician would you want to smoke a beer with? But they never asked which one would you want to hit the bong with, right? So right. it's a lot of work to do in, in that regard. But I, but I think we've accomplished a lot and, and done a lot to lead Canada towards better cannabis policies. Yeah, that's absolutely a step in the right direction. You you talked about the federal government of Canada being, being progressive. Um, <clears throat> so like, for instance, here in the States, 
uh, federally, marijuana is straight up illegal. So, you know, state dispensaries here in Oklahoma are unable to open up a bank account, uh, you know, and it's a cash only business, uh, you know, it, that creates a lot of problems. Is that what happens in Canada or can, can dispensaries open up bank accounts and is there free commerce there? Well, if you're a legal shop and we can't call the legal shops dispensaries because, I mean, everyone calls them that. But uh -huh. under the under the law in Canada, these are non-medical marijuana shops. And if uh -huh. you want medical marijuana, which is really how the whole thing started, the legalization movement really didn't get started, but really took a big step forward with, with the concept of medical marijuana. And it was medical marijuana dispensaries that broke through. But these new shops, they're 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 specifically non-medical. So if you go in there and say, Well, is there a strain that will help me sleep better? Or is there, you know, I've got this ailment, what can help me with that? They're not supposed to tell you anything. They're not supposed to answer your questions. If you want medical marijuana in Canada, you're supposed to go to a doctor, get a prescription, and then order it by mail order from one of these companies. But the price is exactly the same, except you're also paying shipping and you got to wait a while for it to arrive. So it's a bizarre situation where a medical user with a severe medical need has a harder time getting medicinal marijuana than a someone who just wants to get high. That That's much more accessible. It's a really weird situation they've created. You can't buy medical marijuana over the counter in Canada, only recreational marijuana. It's all the same thing, of course. It's all the same product from the same suppliers, just a different name on it, right? Yeah. But no, there's no banking issues with that. Once you're legal in Canada, you're legal at the federal level, you're legal at the provincial level. What we do have, though, is many cities have decided they're not going to give a license to a marijuana shop. So we have parts of the country and some cities where there's just no legal marijuana access. you got to go to a neighboring city to buy it. And another wow. example is in Canada, we're also allowed to grow four plants per household, not per person, but per household. That's a federal law, but which came with legalization. And then, you know, four plants is not nearly enough. It's a lot better than zero plants, but it's not as good as unlimited, right? But another example, but when that passed, two of our provinces, Quebec and Manitoba, they both said, no, we're passing our own law at the provincial level to ban marijuana growing at the provincial level. And we're not even sure if they're allowed to do that. So there's a court case going on right now to determine whether that is within provincial jurisdiction to sort of criminalize something that's allowed federally. In my province of British Columbia, which is supposed to be a very marijuana-friendly province, but they passed a law saying you can grow your four plants per household, but if anybody can see one of your plants from a public space, so if your plant is on a balcony or in the window or in a yard where there's no fence or anything, you can be arrested and go to prison for three months and get a $3,000 fine. And if it happens a second time, you're eligible for a six-month jail sentence and a $6,000 fine. So cannabis is legal, but it's so damaging to people to see it in public that you can be imprisoned and fined if someone sees your legal plant, which is absurd, obviously. I can display yeah. all my beer bottles in my front yard if I want to. That's not a crime, nor should it be. And so there's a lot of weird stigmatization and penalties around cannabis still at the city and state level, at the, at the province level, <clears throat> it'll take another 10 years of these things to slowly get improved. You know, that'll be a slow process. At least we're confident that things aren't going to get worse with the marijuana laws and that we're only going to see them improve now. You know, I think it'll be easier to get from four plants to 40 plants than it was to get from zero plants to four plants. But it's still going to be a long process. 
And I think the politicians who did this, they're not interested in revisiting it. They put a lot of work and a lot of political capital into changing the laws. It was a big hassle. They had to get all the different stakeholders and groups in. They had to bribe the police with a $300 million bonus to deal with all the extra problems that are going to come from legalization. After legalization, all the police said, everything's fine. There's no problems. We're not making any more work. But they had to buy them out with a $300 million gift from the federal government. So they don't want to reopen this again. It'll be several years. It'll be like, you know, cities slowly allowing more places and making their bylaws easier. Some of the provinces in British Columbia, they're looking at allowing uh, consumption sites for marijuana. Not smoking, because you still can't smoke or vaporize cannabis indoors, but they're going to maybe, maybe they'll allow a place where you can go and eat a marijuana brownie indoors. Possibly they're going to allow this now. It's been forbidden so far. So this kind of small incremental change, I think, will continue over the next 10, 20 years. Uh, but uh, I don't think we're going to see a big like re-examination of the marijuana laws for at least 10 years. There's no, there's no political desire to like tweak the laws. And most people are happy with it. You know, people like me want to see more changes, but most cannabis users are happy to go to a legal shop and, and buy their weed there. And if it's taxed a little heavily, they don't really care so much, especially if they're not a heavy user. Now, you know, with, with the shops um, having to charge more because of all these fees and taxes and whatnot, is, have you seen the black market kind of ebb and flow um, as in response to some of these taxes and, and whatnot that come down the line? Like if you see legal weed go up, do you, is there a noticeable uh, increase in, in black market sales or, you know, I don't know how you, you would know that across the entire, you know, country of Canada, no, but. You're absolutely right. And I'm actually, like, when I opened my dispensaries, it was a long time before legalization. And post-legalization, I'm still running an unlicensed medical marijuana dispensary. There's still a few of us diehards left who are fighting the bureaucracy. We're, we're supposedly transitioning into the legal system. But it's a transition I don't really want to make. Or at least I, I don't mind making it if the legal system was working. But I feel that the black market is still providing a counterbalance. In California, I was reading a few months ago, they were lowering the taxes at the, in the city of Los Angeles and at the state level because they want to take it away from the black market. So the legal market should actually be thanking the black market because they're helping improve the legal market. And yeah. the same thing in Canada with tobacco, by the way. We tax our tobacco very heavily. And as a result, there's a thriving black market in tobacco. And I'm not against taxes. You know, I, mean, I know this is a libertarian podcast. I'm not a taxation of theft kind of person, right? But taxes have to be reasonable and at a certain point. And when you overtax something, it's the same as a prohibition. And in fact, the first marijuana prohibition in the US was a tax that made it impossibly yep. high, right? So if you're going to say it's $1,000 an ounce or whatever, that's effectively a prohibition for anybody but the very wealthy, right? Right. So, so our dispensary is still very busy, uh, even though we're unlicensed and, and, and outside of the legal system, people still choose to come to us because I think we have better products. We have fresher products. One of the challenges with legal marijuana in Canada is that you might be a grower. That grower produces marijuana. They ship it to an intermediary. That intermediary sends it to the provincial government. That provincial government sends it to a storefront. And in all that time, it could be months. So no matter how good that one gram bud was when it was harvested, it's been sitting in a plastic container, maybe with a Boveda thing in it to keep it, you know, a, a moisturizer control, the humidity control. But the reality is it's very hard to keep a single bud or a small amount of cannabis in good quality 
when it's in a plastic container for three to six months. I see people buy marijuana. It says on the label it was harvested a year ago. And so that's a big problem. Wow. It's fresh. There's also potency limits on legal marijuana. And although I think definitely eating cannabis, not on smokable cannabis, but on eating cannabis, there's quite low potency limits. And I, I definitely, you know, things should be well labeled. You can eat too much cannabis and that can be very unpleasant and quite impairing. But some people, especially medical users, need really high doses of edibles. And those are not available. So if you need a really strong amount, you're going to have to buy a large quantity of cannabis products and then eat quite a bit. That's going to cost you a lot of money. But through the black market where edibles are much stronger or through our dispensary, you're able to access these kind of products that just aren't really available yet through legalization. And so definitely these taxes, it depends on what kind of cannabis user you are, right? They say that the majority of cannabis users in Canada are buying from the legal market. And that makes sense to me because most cannabis users are occasional users. The average pot smoker is having a few puffs once a week. They just want a little bit and they're high. They have a nice weekend or whatever. So yeah. those people, you don't care if, if your gram costs $4 more because it's, you're not using very much. Then there's people who are either medical users or heavy users like myself who are using you know, a half ounce a day or something, right? A quarter ounce, a half ounce a day. We're way more price sensitive because that extra couple of dollars a gram adds up to thousands and thousands of dollars a month if we're going to buy our cannabis from the legal system. And also those heavier users are more likely to think of themselves as like, I'm a part of the cannabis culture. I'm a cannabis person, as opposed to just I'm someone who has a puff on cannabis. So they're more likely to sort of identify as part of the culture and they're more likely to have their own supply and to have a good contact, good connection and to, and to seek that out. So I don't think we've succeeded in bringing over like the heavy users to the legal market yet. Most of the people that I know who use cannabis like a lot, like every day and who are smoking, you know, several joints a day, they're not buying it from the legal market yet. And that, and that I think is a failure of the legal market. So they may have most of the users, but they don't have most of the cannabis yet. And I think we're the people they really need. There's that 20, 80 ratio, right? 20% consume 80% of the product. And I think that's, that's a general rule of thumb in a lot of areas that I think that with cannabis, They've got to improve it to get the, the hardcore people like myself and medical users into that system. And that means better prices. It means higher potency. It means less delays between something being harvested and something being on the shelf. And this will be years before this is dealt with and before it comes out. So we're still seeing cannabis raids. We're still seeing places, people getting busted for cannabis. We're still mm. seeing a thriving black market in cannabis. And I think that's part of the process, you know, but things are better than they used to be. And, uh, and I think it's moving towards, you know, so I'd be happy if, if the legal system was meeting all the needs and my shop couldn't compete because the legal system was better, then that'd be good. I mean, most people, given the choice between going to the legal cheese shop and the unregulated illegal cheese shop, like you're probably going to go to the legal cheese shop because you're not so sure about that unregulated cheese right. shop, but it might be a bit right? You don't know. This guy says, yeah. I don't follow it. You know, we do our own rules, right? <laughs> the prices are the same. But if the legal shop's like way more expensive and the illegal shop seems to have pretty good cheese, you might go there, right? So the legal system needs to be better than us and to outcompete us and not just to or try to arrest us into oblivion or whatever, right? So yeah, a lot of challenges there. Uh, and a lot of there's I won't get into all of them, but there's a lot of other rules and regulations that need to be altered, especially when it comes to medical users, especially when it comes to vulnerable people, you know, having high taxes on cannabis. They say, well, we want to discourage use, so we put extra taxes on it. Well, maybe in a vacuum, that's one thing. But when alcohol is more available, when people often use cannabis as a substitute for street drugs like opiates, 
you know, we need to make these things affordable for people and available. Yeah. There's a lot of people, I don't find smoking cannabis is so helpful for opiate users, but eating it in large potencies can really help opiate users. It can be a good substitution for that. Not everybody or whatever, and I think opiates should be legal too, but if a safer option is available, that should be encouraged. And, uh, and so, you know, they got to make it more available. Tax has got to be lower. Potency has got to be higher. Quality has got to be better. And this is all coming. But my role, I think, is to work outside the system and put pressure on the system that way to help, uh, to help improve it and, and make things better for everybody. Man, hammered down. I, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm glad that we crossed paths and I can kind of like see some of this effort that you're doing, the, the progress that you've made. I am, uh, admittedly, a, as true to American form, completely in the dark on how other countries operate. And so, when it came to kind of the the uh, cannabis market in Canada, I was I was largely in uh, not in the know. So this has been an uh, illuminating for me. Um, now, when it comes to you know, you mentioned you know psilocybin mushrooms. Like, what what's going on there? How's that process coming along? So what we have in Canada, and especially in Vancouver, is kind of similar to how things went in Holland when it came to coffee shops there, right? Where uh -huh. the federal law was always, they still was illegal to sell and import cannabis, but cities like Amsterdam and other cities decided it would, they wanted to control the trade, so they were offering business licenses and allowing coffee shops to set up. Even though they're against federal law, there was a sort of gray area where the cities would license and allow it. That's what happened with Canada, pre-legalization with cannabis dispensaries where Vancouver and other cities even started giving out business licenses after a while to cannabis shops that were breaking federal law, but the city wanted to try to regain control over them. And they realized if we allow some and put rules in, okay, you can't be right next to a kindergarten. You can't, you know, you gotta be in certain areas. You gotta have certain, so they put a bunch of rules in. Some of the rules I don't agree with, but they put a bunch of rules in and they allowed those that follow those rules to stay open and try to, Closed down other ones, not with the police, but with like bureaucracy and fines and threatening landlords and things like that. So now we're seeing the same thing with mushroom dispensaries. About two years ago, I announced I was going to open an online mushroom dispensary and open a storefront soon after. This was pre-COVID, right? With late, late, late 2019. And um, uh, I, I'm not the first person to sell mushrooms on the internet in Canada by any means. I'm the first one to put my name on it and say, this is me and I am doing this. I'm challenging the law. And when I did that, the Vancouver City Council, one of our councillors, a woman named Melissa DeGenova, she's kind of a, my nemesis on city council. We argue on Twitter a lot, and she complains about me, and I complain about her, and we have fun, you know, attacking each other or whatever, right? But she tried to put a motion forward at City Hall, which was basically like a bylaw to stop Dana from opening a mushroom dispensary storefront. Uh, but it was actually good because the bylaw she brought forward was so over the top and extreme, it brought up things like Mexican drug cartels and Middle Eastern gangs and the mushroom trade. It brought up the idea that you could inject magic mushrooms and how dangerous. <laughs> so I mean, there are issues around openly selling mushrooms, but those are not the issues, right? And, uh, and so this motion got kind of laughed at by the rest of the city council. And like dozens and dozens of people showed up to speak, all of whom talked about how beneficial microdosing was people who who had experiences that exchanged their lives how safe mushrooms are and so city council really got a big pull on this and they decided not to pass anything not to do anything which i took as like an approval they they decided they know i'm going to do this so they decided not to stop me so we opened a mushroom dispensary and now there's probably eight or nine in vancouver i expect there to be 50 or 100 by the end of the year 
we got a business license because we were tricky and opened as a different business cafe and then added the mushrooms in a little later. But most places don't have business licenses. And the city is going after us and others, not with the mm. police. The police in Vancouver, we have a city police force. We don't have the federal RCMP in Vancouver. We have our own Vancouver police. They've said they don't want to raid places because they know it costs about $30,000 to do a raid. We reopen the next day and it doesn't cost <laughs> the courts are not willing to punish us. So we don't end up going to jail. We get a fine or something. So it's not really worth it. So instead, the city uses a bureaucracy and they threaten your landlord and they fine you and they do things that don't provoke, you know, rallies and protests and stuff. And it's more bureaucratic kind of grinding you down the bureaucratic wheels. Right. Uh-huh. But, but it's, you know, so we're but we're we're pushing this forward. I think we're going to see the same thing happening across Canada with mushrooms as we did with marijuana. That there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of these shops opening up all across the country over the next few years, which I think will normalize it. And then, and then the legalization happens after that when it's already kind of normal. And so in many ways, mushrooms are where cannabis was in the 90s in Canada. We've had a few court decisions around mushroom access for people who have got serious ailments and the courts have been agreeing that these people have a right to access mushrooms, just like they were allowing the first medical marijuana patients to have legal access in the 90s. We're seeing dispensaries opening up like mine, just like the first dispensaries in Canada were opening in the mid-late 90s. And we're seeing kind of a, a recognition that this is not just a hedonistic, pleasurable substance. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I always say if marijuana had no medical benefit and just made you feel good, it could still be legal. But the fact that it also has all these medical benefits makes it even more absurd that it is illegal. And with mushrooms, it's the same thing. Mushrooms can be fun and enjoyable and that should be enough. But they also help people deal with trauma and anxiety and PTSD and depression and a whole bunch of other ailments. I just had a guy send me a video recently. He's a Parkinson's patient and he's shaking and can barely speak and he's really got spasms. He gets a handful of psilocybin mushrooms and just puts them in his mouth and takes a bite out of them. And within 30 seconds, his tremors have almost stopped. He's able to speak clearly. Soon he picks up a flute and he's playing the flute in this video. And I, I talked to this guy on the phone for like half an hour and he said he's had this ailment for a long time. He just tried mushrooms like coincidentally one time just to try it out more to help deal with his psychological issues around having this ailment and discovered that it like was this bizarre miracle cure that like not a permanent is taking the mushrooms. And there's a lot of evidence that psilocybin along with mushrooms like lion's mane and turkey tail and a few other ones, they have real good benefits on the mycelium sheathing around our nerves. And when this sheathing, it's like, it's like the, the insulator around an electric cord. And when that starts to break down, then the electricity can come out in the wrong place. It slows down reactions. It can cause all kinds of spasms and different kind of ailments. And that these mushrooms, including psilocybin, help to heal and repair that kind of that sheathing around our nerves. And so that would be the mode of action. And it's really remarkable. And so, you know, I have people come to me with stories all the time about how much either the microdosing or the macrodosing is helping them and how grateful they are to have access. And so I really think just like when cannabis was first getting accepted medical marijuana, like, oh, there's more than just THC. Oh, there's CBD. And people are now like, oh, there's CBG and CBN and different kinds of THC and different kinds of these things. And they all kind of work together in different ways. And it's challenging, but very interesting to try to tease apart how all these different elements work. Well, with mushrooms, it's the same thing. There's psilocybin, which is a chemical which isn't actually psychoactive in itself, but it's converted into psilocin in the body. 
And psilocin is also present in mushrooms as well, but psilocin is a more fragile molecule. So when you dry the mushrooms or heat them up, the psilocin is usually destroyed, but the psilocybin stays in whole. And then when you eat the mushroom, the psilocybin is converted to psilocin in your body. But there's a whole bunch of other alkaloids that are similar and different, slightly different, just like it's THC and CBD are similar but different. And so I think that we're discovering there's all these different strains of mushrooms that we carry that seem to have very different effects. Just like cannabis, they're all mushrooms, you know, just like cannabis, sativa, and indica. It's all marijuana. It's all similar, but there's definitely a difference also between different strains and how they affect you. And we're discovering that the different strains of mushrooms also have different effects. And I hope that over the coming years, we'll do more research into this to understand what precise alkaloids are having these different effects and what combinations they work best in. That'll be coming, I think. And as legalization approaches, it gets easier to do research. And mm -hmm. also people are more willing to spend money because they think they're going to be able to profit off of this as well, right? The challenge with the way our pharmaceutical system works is that it's expensive to bring new products to the market. And since cannabis and mushrooms are not patentable and not owned by anybody, there's not a lot of interest in a pharmaceutical company investing a lot of money in, these, in, in analyzing these things when they're really just things that are going to compete with their patented molecules, right? So, uh, you know, we're seeing now a trend towards trying to create synthetic cannabinoids and synthetic psilocybin molecules that people can patent and control. And while I'm not against synthetics and they should be researched and studied, I don't want expensive synthetic products to replace extremely cheap and effective natural medicines and plants, which really should be allowed. And for most people provide a preferable experience. Most people prefer smoking a joint to taking pure THC. And most people I know prefer taking a mushroom to ingesting like pure psilocin. We have the synthetics available at our shop. Some use them, most prefer natural mushrooms. And I think that's like a logical choice because you get a, a broad range of molecules and it creates a more rounded experience for people. That is, uh, I was having a conversation with someone uh, earlier today and the amount of unrealized medical applications for a lot of these substances that have been banned or, you know, kept in the black market um, is just, it's an atrocity is what it is. And, you know, it's like you said, though, you know, with, with that needle moving a little bit more, you know, legalization becoming a thing, I am excited to see, um, you know, what happens with the psilocybin um, and what, what you guys are able to accomplish. Now, what, what about other substances like MDMA, um, amphetamines, um, opiates? Is there well, anything happening in the market out there for that or? There is. Yeah. Yeah. So MDMA, um, we don't offer that at our place. MDMA is not really good for microdosing with, unlike mushrooms. It's not really a psychedelic. It's a different molecular family, right? Uh -huh. MDMA is an amphetamine. The MA and MDMA stands for methamphetamine, but it's a different molecule, but it's in the methamphetamine family or the amphetamine family. So it doesn't work well for microdosing, uh, but definitely MDMA has a lot of therapeutic benefits in macro dosages. Um, and, uh, and we don't offer that at our place yet. I'm trying to work on getting a supply. It's just been a challenge bringing it in. These things are all on the same schedule in Canada. So we do sell LSD at our place. We sell LSD in liquid form. It's intended for microdosing, but you can, you know, drink half the bottle if you want to get a macro dose, nothing wrong with that. And it still allows you in liquid form, you can like, when you get a tab of acid, it's kind of hard to like, well, I want to take 80% or how much is actually in this tab. They can right. vary in potency. LSD is quite safe, but you want to know how much you're taking and be aware of what yeah. you're getting, right? So in a liquid form, you can decide very precisely how much you want, which is good for microdosing, but also for larger dosages too. 
When it comes to opiates like heroin and even meth as well, um, I don't provide those, but there's a group in Vancouver called DULF, which stands for the Drug User Liberation Front. I and remember seeing that, people, yeah. You know, they've been doing public events where they give away heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine to people. And we used to do this, and we still do this, but we used to do this a lot in the early days at our marijuana rallies. We'd throw joints out to the crowd. We'd have raffles and give away marijuana that way, trying to find ways to you know, get this out to people in a way that bypasses the police. And you know, these laws are about limiting our access to these substances. So making it available is important. Now, these guys don't just throw out heroin boxes to a crowd of people. They make sure that those they're giving it to are people that have a need, that are already users and so on. But they do it very publicly. They do it in front of the police station. I think the last time or one or two protests ago, one of our city councilors came down and helped give out drugs to people just to make a point that she believed this was important and helped in the protest. That, I think, is very important. There's a lot of talk among myself and this group about trying to open some kind of a heroin buyers club or a compassion club in some way to make it available there's logistical challenges around that that we're working on uh, and i'm hoping that happens sometime this year whether i'm directly involved or whether Dulf does it or we work together somehow or something but that i think is important um, when it comes to cocaine actually part of what i do my mushroom dispensary shop it's actually there's two businesses in one location it's half mushroom dispensary and half of it's called the coca leaf cafe and so we don't provide cocaine, but we provide coca leaf in its whole form and for tea. And that's how it's been consumed across South yeah. America for thousands of years. They've been chewing it, drinking it as a tea. And it's, it's, I think cocaine should be legalized. I also think that if coca tea and coca leaf and coca products were more widely available, then snorting cocaine would be about as popular as snorting caffeine is now. You can buy bulk caffeine. If you Google it, there's Reddit forums, people talking about snorting caffeine. It's definitely happened, but it's like less than 1% of caffeine users are snorting caffeine. Caffeine is very prevalent. Pretty much everyone drinks it in a drink. If you want a lot of caffeine, you just drink a monster energy drink or you have espresso. If you really want a lot of caffeine, you might take a caffeine pill, but that's even that's pretty rare. People do snort it, but not very often. And I think, but if we banned coffee and coffee was no longer available, you can be sure that within a few years, a lot of folks might quit drinking coffee, but it would just take 1% of coffee drinkers to like go to snorting coffee or going to a stronger form. That will be a, that will be millions of people around the planet, right? Because yeah. coffee is so prevalent. And I think if we allowed coca tea and coca drinks and maybe like things that aren't as pure as cocaine, but are stronger than a coca tea, like a bit like a monster energy drink for coca or whatever, right? That people would tend towards those milder products. And so, we offer coca tea. I like to chew coca leaf. I chew it almost every day. I drink coca tea every day. And I spent quite a while down in Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, meeting coca activists, meeting coca growers and farmers, going to people there, politicians and that, and trying to find access. It's not legal to bring coca leaf into Canada, but it's, it's, and it's a challenge, but you can do it. It's, it's a, you know, especially in the powder form, it's a green powder. So, you know, you can label it different ways and we bring it across, but it is a challenge and we do lose parcels and we do get warnings from customs and things like that. It's not easy, but we are the only place in the Northern hemisphere where you can walk in and have a cup of coca tea, where you can buy coca leaf to chew. We have live coca plants that we sell and I've got a place where I'm growing live coca plants. And my hope is that one day I'll have enough coca to be able to produce homegrown coca leaf for sale and grow it domestically at least some of our supply to grow it domestically. You know, I love bringing it in from South America. I love 
being able to pay those growers a good price for their product. Uh, but if we could grow it here too, that would also be great. Um, but yeah, that's a unique thing that we do. So our shop is really, there's other mushroom dispensaries out there, but there's nowhere else where you can walk in and get mushrooms and LSD and coca tea and coca leaf and coca plant. We also sell peyote plants in San Pedro and uh, peyote is actually totally legal in Canada. It's never been wow. in Canada. Making mescaline out of it is against the law, but the peyote itself is legal. So we get peyote that's grown in Canada and we sell it to people and make powdered peyote and San Pedro and Peruvian torch. Those are other cacti that also contain mescaline. We also sell a herb called kratom, which you may or may not be aware of. Your listeners may not have heard of it, but it's really very important, especially in this time of, of this massive overdose death crisis we're going through. Kratom is a, is a leaf from a tree that grows in Southeast Asia in areas like Vietnam, and uh, uh, Bali and, and Burma and stuff like Indonesia, stuff like that. And this leaf uh, has opiate-like properties. And it's, it's a good substitute for many people who are using heroin or fentanyl or street drugs. You consume it in a tea or you can just eat it, mix it up with applesauce. It has a very bitter, unpleasant taste, but you can mix it up with applesauce or put it with orange juice and drink it. Uh, it, it does have some risks, but if you take too much of it, you don't like stop breathing and go into an overdose like you do with heroin or fentanyl. You feel nauseous and you throw up more like an alcohol overdose where you, you feel sick, but it doesn't kill people. And uh, it's much easier to judge your dose properly when you're dealing with a tea than when you're dealing with some tiny amount of fentanyl or heroin that you're trying to inject or smoke. So I think it's a wonderful alternative. It's also in a gray area in Canada. It's not a controlled drug, but you're not really supposed to sell it for human consumption. But whatever, we sell it to people and make it available. I don't care. And it's <laughs> important awesome. because you got to make people aware, you know, if you take Kratom every single day, you're going to get withdrawal symptoms and you're going to, it can be addictive. So if you used to be a heroin addict and now you're, you know, taking Kratom all the time, that's, I think, is a step forward. But I discourage people who don't need it. It can be euphoric and can feel good. But if you don't need to do it every day, don't do it every day because, you know, it's probably good for my business. They'll come back more often, but I don't want to create people who are dependent, who don't need to be dependent. So you got to be careful about it. But Kratom, I think, is one small part of the solution to the overdose death crisis, the safe supply, not only of heroin and other drugs, but of like safer alternatives like Kratom. So we do a lot of things like that. We sell some other interesting herbs there too, um, medicinal herbs and things. But those are the real kind of big sellers and the ones that I think are most important to get out there, you know, mushrooms, uh, psychedelic cacti, coca leaf, uh, LSD, and kratom. We sell uh, DMT vape pens as well. We just brought those. Nice. In. So that's another option. And so we're trying to expand our line of products, but I think we're doing pretty good so far and uh, doing something that nobody else. There's other mushroom dispensaries in Vancouver, like I said. I don't think any of them are selling LSD. I know none of them are selling coca leaf or kratom. I think we are unique in the range of products and the approach we're taking. Uh, to our business, and that's and and already just your stance alone on 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 uh, kratom is miles better than than big pharma out here in the states with like suboxone and subutex and you know um, so like you know my I, I'm a recovery guy right I'm in recovery I, I work in substance abuse um, I I help people and the amount of people that I've heard of who will get on Subox and something like that, become incredibly addicted to it and not be able to get off of the thing that they were using, get off the heroin. There's a lot of people who will get back on the heroin to get off the Suboxone. I mean, it's insane, you know, and, and doctors around here, you know, will make kind of a, a lame attempt at, at trying to feign 
uh, wanting to wean people off. But the reality is, man, they, 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 when they prescribe, they prescribe for life, you know, and they, they're, they are on for that ride. Um, and, but good for you for having a responsible outlook for your consumers. I mean, I absolutely believe in people who, who want to stop using should have those options. I believe in recovery, but I don't believe that all drug users or addicts or everyone needs to stop using or that, like, if we had enough treatment for everybody, like, no, it's not like that. When mm-hmm. during alcohol prohibition, people were dying, dropping dead on the street from drinking poisoned alcohol. And the solution was not like, we need more AA for everybody and more treatment. Right. No, it should be there. It should be available. It's part of the equation. But the solution to that was having a safe and legal alcohol supply. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that our drug laws make it very difficult to use drugs responsibly. You know, when you're drinking opium tea, there's issues around opium tea, but it's much easier to titrate your dose. It's much easier to use in small amounts and not to use every day. It's very hard to take fentanyl responsibly because you're dealing with such a potent substance. It's very hard to judge your dose. You don't know what you're getting. And so it's very difficult to titrate it, to use it properly, to go. And the more potent something gets and the more concentrated it is, the harder it is to use it that way. If the only liquor offer available was like Everclear or, you know, the, I don't know if you call it Everclear there, but like the really strong, you know, 70% proof, if that was the only kind of alcohol available, we would have more alcohol problems. The fact that we have beer and wine and milder options available is good. Not We don't want to ban things. You can buy that stuff if you want, but very few alcohol users just choose to drink the strongest possible 100% proof alcohol because they don't really like that, right? And so I think if we had legal options, the more opium tea and opium smoking and maybe morphine was available for people, the less demand there would be for heroin and fentanyl and whatnot. And, you know, in, in British Columbia, you can see this happening in real time because about 20 years ago in the early 2000s, there was a big crackdown on, on what they call it the Dota tea. And Dota tea is made from dried opium poppies and you make it grind them up, make, it, make a powder, make a tea out of it. And it's like a mild opium tea. It's good for pain relief and relaxation. It can be addicting. It can be a challenge if you take a lot of it to stop using. Coffee can be addicting too, of course. But it's not going to be as much of a challenge stopping or judging your use as it is with like injecting heroin or something, right? right. And they cracked down on this and they raided a huge poppy or a big poppy field that was growing in the suburbs. And they started cracking down and they stopped trucks coming in with these poppy leaves and went after all this stuff. And you see in the paper like, Ten years later, there are stories about this massive heroin crisis in the East Asian community, which is where the Dota was being consumed. And I interviewed the people who say, I used to drink Dota tea. I'm a truck driver. I used to drink Dota tea to help with the aches and pains of driving a truck. And I was fine. Then I couldn't get it anymore. So now I started using heroin. Now mm. my life is all messed up and my family is messed up and I'm worried I'm going to die of a fentanyl overdose. And I'm spending a lot more money on this than I used to. And I can't. And so, like, did they help anybody? Like, no. People were fine with their opium tea. And if they were drinking too much opium tea and they wanted help getting off of that or something, that should be available. But criminalizing it and banning it, it just drives people to the harder, more concentrated substances, right? And so drug laws, I think, you know, I'm I'm not a believer. I I believe in like nudging, like the government's role, like nudging people towards better solutions. I think that's an appropriate thing. You nudge people by making some things more available. If you really need heroin, should be able to get it. But, you know, the opium tea shop's a lot more accessible than the heroin shop is, right? The one, you know, that kind of situation, right? You want cocaine? Okay. But if you want coca tea, that's widely available. It's a bit more challenging or a bit restricted in some way. Not criminalized and prohibited, but that to me is sort of the, the appropriate role for government and health and that kind of stuff, you know? 
Um, but but to have this absolute prohibition on things, it just turns all the trade over to the black market. It 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 ultimately puts people in charge of the trade who, because of the nature of it, those who are the most vicious and the most controlling and the most domineering will end up controlling the market, especially for things that are hard to produce. Like cannabis kind of resisted that because cannabis is fairly easy to grow indoors. And so it, it was harder to monopolize. But things that are imported and brought across borders and that are grown or produced in more complicated ways become quickly monopolized. And the profits get really concentrated. And even going from heroin to fentanyl, you know, I've been to Mexico and met all these all these opium farmers who have been growing opium poppies for the cartels, and it would benefit their community and their town would make a living off of growing these opium poppies to make heroin out of. Now that it's fentanyl, they can make all the fentanyl in one lab in the bush somewhere. It takes maybe a half dozen people to make it. The profit is not spread out over a whole community. It's spread out over a much smaller number of people. It's much easier to smuggle. Of course, anybody's going to go to that. And so the whole market always goes towards the most concentrated, dangerous forms. And when you're dealing with high profits like that, people that are the most violent and the most vicious and the most unpleasant are going to end up running things because they're going to want to go to the extremes and push others out of the business. And so, you know, legalization of all these things. People say, well, do you want to legalize meth? And it's like, well, you know, you can go to the store and buy rat poison and eat it if you want to. I can buy bleach and inject it into my body. <laughs> It shouldn't be a crime, right? We don't say, well, do you want to legalize injecting bleach? Well, it is legal. We don't encourage it. We discourage it, but we don't criminalize it. And so the idea that, well, something, you know, the reason things get criminalized when it comes to drugs is because people want to do them and they like it. So they criminalize it for that reason, right? So everything should be legal, but the safer the option is and the milder it is, the more that should be encouraged, both from our, from a, like a social point of view and a legal point of view. And so and more concentrated and dangerous forms should be more limited and have more warning labels on them and, and those kind of things, right? And so that, you know, but it all should be available to those who need it. And people will naturally always go towards the milder forms. Look, even when, even when cannabis has become legal, what's the biggest increase? People want to eat the strongest. It's legal now. Let's eat the strongest edibles we can and hallucinate and pass out. Nobody does that. In fact, it's the biggest areas of growth with legal marijuana is CBD. That's the fastest growing area of marijuana. With psychedelics, now they move towards legalization. Is it, well, people are going to take heroic dosages and trip out for days? No, it's actually microdosing is actually the biggest area of growth, right? People tend to prefer the milder forms when those are available. And so I think that would also be a trend with opiates, with stimulants, with all these things. You know, so people don't, people could snort caffeine and pop caffeine pills. But pretty much nobody does that because we like coffee and that gives you the effect you want. And I think that that's what legalization would bring. Prohibition makes everything more dangerous. And I think that's kind of what they want because the idea is drug use is bad and dangerous. So we're going to make sure that it's really dangerous so you don't do it. If we make it too safe, then you might do it. And that's dangerous. And so it's this weird circular backwards logic, right? Yeah. Same thing saying, well, we're going to ban condoms because sex has risks involved. So let's ban condoms so no one has sex. And that used to be the policy for a long time, right? Let's stigmatize sex. Let's not talk about it. Let's ban it. Birth control is prohibited. Only sex when you're married. Only for childbirth. And But that results actually in more STDs, more unwanted pregnancies, more things, and allowing safer access. There's no contradiction between saying, I believe that sex is best after marriage and that you should not have sex before marriage. But 
We're also going to make condoms available because we know not everyone is going to follow that, that rule. And we want to make sure that if you are going to make this choice, you have the ability to make it responsibly. I don't feel there's a contradiction between that. You can say, I don't think people should smoke marijuana, but if they're going to use marijuana, I want to make sure it's from a clean supply. They know what they're getting. It's not contaminated. It doesn't have other things in it. It's not going to be harmful. These are not contradictory statements, but we feel that because we morally oppose something, we must criminalize it. And those are two different things. And criminalization, it should not be the way we deal with moralistic issues. And of course, as a libertarian, you obviously know all this kind of stuff, but that is the philosophy that I think needs to direct our drug policies. And drug, a drug, the war on drugs is a very real war involving armies and governments and soldiers, massive death, instability from Afghanistan to Colombia to many other countries in the world. Their governments are you know, deeply corrupted, including our own. It's the number one corrupting of, of police forces and armies around the world. It's in every, I wouldn't say that ending the drug war is going to create a paradise, but it's a real linchpin on so many policies in so many areas. Whatever it is you care about is a social issue, whether it's racial social justice, whether it's the environment, whether it's individual liberty, whether it's mass incarceration, whether it's public health, whether it's stopping overdoses, whether it's over-policing or whatever these issues are, they're all dramatically improved by getting rid of our prohibitionary drug laws and putting better policies in place that recognize that drug use is natural and normal, and the role of the government should be to try to make it safe for people to engage in these kind of behaviors. It's like we have speed limits for our cars, you know, we just like we have limits and things. We should have limits and controls in some ways, but ones that are that are designed to maximize public health, to maximize liberty and safety at the same time. And prohibition just does all the things that the drug war claims it's trying to fight. It is actually causing all those things to happen. Yep. A hundred percent. And so like <clears throat> being a member of, you know, the 12 step community, um, I often get some pretty crazy looks whenever I can have some of these conversations out in the parking lot after a meeting or whatnot, but talking about ending the war on drugs. And it always wraps back to this one simple line of logic and that is dead addicts cannot recover. So if somebody is dying because of a, uh, you know, a, a fentanyl drug poisoning or an overdose, um, they're never going to be able to find that freedom. And, and, you know, I agree hundred percent with what you said. Not every person who does drugs is an addict. I, I agree. Um, and even more so for them, for that person, like they don't deserve to die because they couldn't get a clean product. And I really do kind of want to segue into what you do with, with drug testing and, and, uh, and all of that, because that is a beautiful, beautiful thing you got going on. Yeah, so I founded a program called Get Your Drugs Tested in Vancouver. We started this in 2019, and we basically bought a machine. It's called an FTIR spectrometer. That stands for Fourier Transform Infrared. Basically, it's about the size of a bread box. You put the tiniest little tenth of a gram sample of pretty much any, not so much like an organic thing. We can't test like your marijuana for you, but we can test pure THC or CBD, but cocaine, heroin, fentanyl, opiates, LSD, uh, DMT, MDMA, cocaine, all those kind of things. We can analyze it and give you a pretty good idea of what's in there. We also use test strips to make sure for fentanyl because there is like a percentage cutoff limit with our machine and sometimes fentanyl is in very low amounts. But basically, in about five to ten minutes, we can analyze your substance, tell you what's in it, and help you make an informed decision about your drug use. <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, sometimes we're looking for fentanyl and that's definitely an issue if you're buying 
you don't expect it to be fentanyl in there. It is. That's a problem. Maybe you are looking for fentanyl. You're looking for down. And really, heroin is not really available anymore. There is some heroin out there. We do see it occasionally. But often people think they bought heroin. It's actually fentanyl, usually mixed with caffeine. Bizarrely, caffeine is actually the most common thing we find. It's used as a mixture with almost everything else. So huh. cocaine is sometimes cut with caffeine. Uh, down, which is like a, sort of any kind of uh, a relaxant or pain reliever. It used to be mostly heroin. Now it's mostly fentanyl. But also you see benzodiazepines in the down supply now as well. Uh, but they're often cut with caffeine as well. It's very common. Caffeine also increases the uptake of opiates. So if you smoke heroin with caffeine, it helps you absorb the heroin, more of the heroin better from what I understand. It increases the bioavailability. So that's another reason they mix it together. But basically, we've analyzed over 25,000 substances now. If you go to getyourdrugstested.com, all of our test results are on our website in a searchable database. You can really dig into our data. We take pictures of most of the samples, so we have a lot of pictures. You can just look at our LSD gallery and see all the, what the different hits of acid look like, or look at our pill gallery and see all the different pills and things like that. We try to make it accessible for people. But we've actually become the world's busiest drug analysis lab, so there's nowhere else on Earth that you can walk into and get your drugs tested that's doing more samples a day than us. We're doing over a 1,000 a month now on average, and we don't get any money from the government. We don't get any support or help from the government. We pay for this all with our revenue from our unlicensed marijuana dispensary and now from our unlicensed or our you know gray area mushroom dispensary. So to me, it's all sort of a project to help people make informed choices, to create a safer drug supply. And you know, I, I don't think we should be needed because people should be able to buy their drugs tested before they buy them with a label that accurately represents the content. But failing that, we're able to help people make better decisions. And um, and so sometimes it's about finding fentanyl, but also sometimes it's just like, oh, you thought this was MDMA, but it's actually MDA. And those are similar, but different substances and have different effects. And here's what you can expect. Or, oh, this is cocaine, and but it's also got something else in it that may or may not be harmful. Or here's how to use it properly. Or maybe you don't want to use it because something in it can be risky. Um, and so a lot of it's just, sometimes it's a life or death situation. Sometimes we had one guy bring in what he thought was ecstasy, MDMA. It turned out it was methamphetamine and Viagra mixed together. So, you know, MDMA has kind of a sensual heart opening. It's good for dancing. It's got energy. So taking a capsule with methamphetamine would give you kind of the energy aspect. And mm -hmm. I guess Viagra would give you kind, not a sensual feeling, but it would give you an erection and kind of a, a sexual thing. So that's like a poor man's, you know, a poor man's combination trying to make this. But clearly people want to know what they're getting, right? So yeah often weird things like that that show up and even if we can tell you hey it's good then at least you know when you're taking it you don't got to feel so paranoid oh i feel a little weird what was in there now you start having a bad trip because you're getting worried maybe for no reason and so we're able to help people a lot with that we don't just give them the drug back like give them the results we also try to guide them on what those results mean so even if the result is yes this is what you expected it was we'll still try to talk to the person and be like well yeah your cocaine is cocaine Here's a few tips on how to use cocaine more safely and have more responsibly and some things you might want to watch out for, right? So we try to give that guidance as well. And to me, it's, it's, I'm proud of this program. I'm thrilled to be able to offer it. But it's frustrating that as private citizens, we have to pick up the slack because this should be the government should be running this. And in British Columbia, our provincial government says they believe in a safe drug supply. They've asked the federal government to decriminalize possession of drugs in British Columbia. And, they, and yet, 
this program really could do a lot. We only have two of these machines. They cost about $50,000 each. So we've spent several hundred thousand dollars on buying these two machines and running this program. <clears throat> the province of British Columbia actually has like 16 of these machines that they bought, but they don't use them. They will use them like, well, we'll be at an injection site on Wednesday from 1 till 3 p.m. And that's fine for those who are there at that moment. But if you're an XTC user, you're probably not going to want to go to the injection site to get your stuff tested. It can be quite frightening in there. If you're not used to that experience, it can be very overwhelming, right? It's a yeah. safe place to be, but there's a lot of people there and desperate circumstances and crazy shit going on. And it's in a difficult part of town. And a lot of folks do not feel comfortable going there. We're right on the edge of what's called the downtown east side in Vancouver, which is like the poorest postal code in Canada with a lot of street people and a lot of homelessness and a lot of street drug use. We're right on the edge of that community. So we serve those people who need help, but we're also accessible to other people who want to come and get like psychedelics or other things tested. So I think we reach more people, but it's just that, you know, the, the province has like 16 of these machines. They hardly ever use them. It's very frustrating to me. It's better than not using them at all. I don't think many American states have any kind of drug testing program. So a little is better than nothing. But so we've done 25,000 tests. We're very busy. And we will accept samples from internationally. We do accept samples by mail order as well. Our website, getyourdrugstested.com. I, I can't like encourage others to send me drugs, mostly because I don't want an American getting in trouble in their own country. Right. But you can just drop stuff in the mail with no return address or a fake return address. We only require like a tenth of a gram or like a tiniest little sample, so it's quite safe. And no matter where it comes from, when it arrives in our mailbox, we will send you the results back to whatever email address you gave us, usually the same day we receive the results. We usually do it the same day. And so, you know, we do get the odd sample from overseas, but mostly they're from within Canada. And as a little trivia point, the mailbox that we received them to, it's got my name on it. So it says Dana Larson, and then it's the mailbox. And I think that I've, I've received like thousands of people, two or 3,000 people have sent me samples of drugs in the mail now, uh, maybe even more. So I feel like I'm probably, I probably have received more drugs from more people in the mail than anybody else ever. Uh, I'm still waiting for the Guinness Book of World Records to call me up and give me a trophy or something for the record for the most people mailing me drugs. Uh, but, you know, I'm really proud of the service that we're able to offer it. And we've definitely stopped you know, hundreds, if not thousands of overdoses also helped people just have better drug experiences. Maybe they weren't going to overdose, but they were going to have a real bad time and we're able to prevent that. So I think it's very valuable and something I wish was everywhere on earth uh, for drug users to have access to, but, you know, we're doing the best we can. And I, I, my heart goes out to you and I'm so grateful that people like yourself exist and you're doing what you're doing. Thank you very much. Um, for somebody, a lot of my audience, you know, we're here in the States. How can we find you uh, and how can we support you? How can we help out this effort? I'm personally at DanaLarson.com. My name is, you can see it on the screen, D-A-N-A-L-A-R-S-E-N.com. All the projects are on there. I also write books and I do other things and you'll find it all on my website. I wrote a funny book called Harry Pothead and the Marijuana Stone. Um I've also written like an illustrated history of cannabis in Canada, like a comic book kind of story of cannabis history in Canada. And I got a few other books I've written that are all at potheadbooks.com uh -huh. or getyourdrugstested.com. We do accept donations. If anybody wants to help out, feel free to send us some money. We would love to get that. But really, we pay 99% of this out of ourselves. The donations we get 
don't really, you know, add up. They're very grateful for them, but they don't add up to a huge part of our budget. Um, my mushroom dispensary is online at mushroomdispensary.com. I can't believe that no one else got that website before I did. <laughs> um, uh, my dispensary is at cannabisdispensary.ca. That one's Canada, so cannabisdispensary.ca. We don't ship overseas, but if people want to see all the stuff we've got, that's interesting, and we do ship mail order within Canada. And um, I think that's all my stuff, pretty much, you know. But if you go to danalarson.com, all my things are on there, and you know, I write articles sometimes and do other things like that. But that's where all my main stuff is, and um, I invite people to come and check it out. Right on, Dana. You've been a phenomenal guest. Thank you so much for carving some time out of your schedule to hang out and, and talk about what you're doing and. And thank you. Thank you for real for I everything you do. had a lot of fun do. talking to you. And, you know, if you want me back on again sometime, I'm happy to come back more. And, uh, yeah, it was a real pleasure. And give the good work down there. you got a real challenge ahead of you in Oklahoma, I know. But uh, don't give up hope because these things are going to break all around the world. Some places are going to take a little longer than others. But we'll get to you in Oklahoma, too. And, you know, you'll have legal psychedelics and things in my lifetime. I sure hope so. Oh, man, I'm all, I'm all in for it. All right, Dana, you have a good night now. Hey, thank you very much. Take care. All right. What did I tell you guys, man? Just a wonderful, wonderful guest. It's, it's, I, I love the conversations that I have. I love the guests that I have on. I especially love it whenever I could just kind of fire off a question and then the guest is just all in. Uh, Dana just runs with it, man. And so um, I'll, I'll post all those links that he talked about in the show notes. Absolutely check them out. If you have the ability to donate a little bit, donate because that's a worthy cause. You know, it's not just benefiting people in Canada. Uh, it's benefiting people around the world. And, you know, if you are one of those members in the audience and you're still using and you're curious about a substance, uh, I know it may be a little daunting throwing a uh, sample of, of your bag into uh, into the old mailbox. But, you know, hey, better safe than sorry. Right. So, uh Dana, thanks again, brother, for coming on. And thank all of you out there for tuning in and continuing to uh, to hang out with me, right? While I stumble through this thing called podcasting. And so uh, that's about it. I'm going to wrap it up. I have a great song. I love Spotify, man. I love putting on a song, going to the radio station of said song and just hearing, hearing you know, different tracks that I normally probably wouldn't have heard. And this is one of those tracks. This is a band called Dag Nasty and the song is called Values Here. And it's just a solid punk jam. I know you guys are going to love it. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Big love.